Welcome to Doctors of Tomorrow 56 podcast, a medical podcast for anyone ranging from middle school students to attending physicians, and for anyone interested in learning more about the medical field from all around the world. Welcome to this very exciting episode today. We have a neurosurgeon, so without further ado, we introduce Dr. Pham. Hello, Dr. Pham. Oh, there we go. Okay, oh, okay. Sorry. I think yeah. it was on my mind. All right. <laughs> so, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for taking the time to do this podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Do you mind if I start? No, go ahead, please. Okay. So, okay. so first off, at what age did you know you wanted to pursue medicine? So I would say that I was probably 16 or 17 uh, in high school. So it was around that time where I had the opportunity to volunteer uh, at a hospital setting. And while volunteering, uh, that's when I found that, you know, I really enjoyed the medical aspect of helping people. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can help people. But I think uh, being in the hospital setting and seeing a lot of sick uh, patients, both young and old, that really crystallized uh, my career goal of, of becoming a physician. Of course, yeah, very understandable. So where did you go for undergrad and what was your major? So I went to UCLA, which is the University of California, Los Angeles, which is in Southern California. And my major was um, molecular cell and developmental biology or uh, MCDB for, uh, for short. Um, <laughs> a lot of, I think a lot of other colleges just have MCB, so molecular and cell biology. And our, uh, our developmental aspect, I think was a, uh, an ode to a famous scientist there who worked there specifically in developmental biology. Wow. Okay. So where did you go for medical school? Uh, for medical school, I went to Northwestern University, uh, which is in Chicago, the Feinberg School of Medicine. And I went there for, uh, for four years. Have you done your residency or fellowship? Uh, no. So, so residence, residency and fellowship is, is after medical school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to University of Southern California for my residency. And that was in neurosurgery, and the neurosurgery residency is for seven years. Wow. And then I did a, an optional one-year fellowship afterwards at uh, Columbia University in New York, uh, focusing on spiders. Wow. Do you have any like, um, interesting things that really struck out to you when you were doing your medical school or anything of that sort? I mean, I think, you know... Um, there are a lot of interesting things yeah. and, you know, I could definitely break it down in terms of the most impactful things that I saw and, and learned in medical school and then even afterwards in, in residency and fellowship as well. I think in medical school, it's a very life-changing time, uh, even as a medical student, because now you really start to become face-to-face -face with all of the sick people and their stories and their families and their situations. And, um, you know, that's when you really start to see people's lives saved right in front of you. And you also see people die uh, right in front of you. And prior to medical school, it's always something that maybe you hear about or read on the news or, or see on TV. Um, but when you were a medical student, not only do you see it and experience it, but you realize that the whole purpose of school is so that you can help these and you know i think that's definitely a um a paradigm changing life-changing period of time 
especially since most people go through medical school probably sometime in their 20s. And especially when you're in your 20s and you're thinking that you're devoting your life and career for that purpose, uh, it's definitely a, a thoughtful, a thoughtful time. Of course, yeah. And it's, I would assume, like very worth it, because as you said, you're learning to save lives and everything. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's something that, you know, I can only speak for myself, of course, but, but I would do it. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> Thank you. So what would you say is the reason you decided to pursue a neurosurgeon career? Yeah, so um, in medical school, you know, there, there are a lot of different types of careers and specialties that you can choose. And a lot of people choose those careers uh, based off of the part of the body that they are the most interested in or the type of treatment that they're most interested in, whether it's through surgery or using medicine or using different types of procedures. Um, for me, I found out during, you know, pretty early on that I really enjoyed the nervous system. And so when you're dealing with the nervous system and the brain and the spinal cord, and, um, you know, there's only a few specialties that, that deal with the brain and the spinal cord and the nervous system. And those are essentially neurosurgery, uh, neurology, and psychiatry, right? So those are the three main ones where your real focus is on the brain or, or the mind and how the body works together with all the nerves in the body. And uh, for me, I also knew early on that, that I really enjoyed surgery and, and working with my hands. I, um, I took a lot of enjoyment in, in building things and understanding how things worked. And when I grew up, you know, I, I built a lot of, uh, built my own computer, I built, you know, remote control cars. I, um, you know, I had huge Lego sets at home <laughs> that, uh, that I really enjoyed doing. And so when I found that there could be a career where working with my hands could also help people, then it was it was a natural choice uh, yeah. on my part. Well, that's very interesting, to be honest, because like you said, from very little, you knew that you wanted to work with your hands and you found your career that you're that you're in love with. So what type of traits would you say someone attempting to do the same as you to become a neurosurgeon should they have? I would say that, you know, when most people think of the traits that a, that a neurosurgeon either needs or that's helpful for neurosurgery, I think most people are tempted uh, to think of, you know, having very steady hands and um, being very good with their hands. So, you know, if you have hobbies like uh, playing the piano or you're a chef or, you know, you do um, woodworking, right? So I really enjoy woodworking, which is a very uh, manual activity. And I would think that's important, but I'll tell you that 90%, you know, short of some medical condition where you do have a tremor, I would say 90% of people have enough dexterity to become a neurosurgeon, right? A lot of the tools and techniques that we use um, are made specifically for, you know, the average or, or above average human person. And certainly there are people who are exceptional just like there are exceptional pianists and exceptional um, gymnasts. But um, to be very good and to be excellent at what you do, um, that, that is fine, 
right? So I wouldn't want anyone to worry if you know they're they're clumsy or if they're they're known as butterfingers, right? <laughs> in, in kind of a joking yeah. scenario. Um, when it comes to surgery, things become serious enough where where most people, um, the vast majority of people, are fine. Um, I would say that one of the most important characteristics, to be honest, is dedication, um, determination, and, and honesty, right? As you can see, the, the path to neurosurgery is very long. But once you exit medical school, the training for neurosurgery is seven years. So during that time, just as you've seen in, in a lot of the medical shows where you're, you're looking at medical or surgical residents, you are training in the hospital for a large portion of your waking life. And to do that for seven years means that you really have to be dedicated to what you're doing. And hopefully you are dedicated at that point to neurosurgery. But there is a work ethic that you need to have to keep going, right? To believe that what you're doing is going to help someone someday and that it's going to make a difference and that it, it continues to make a difference even when you're in training. Um, honesty is something that is exceptionally important. You know, we, we learn early on when we're young that it's always good to be honest and, and to don't lie and, and honesty is the best policy and, and all of these, um, you know, quick limericks and comebacks to, to do the right thing. And as we get older into middle, uh, middle school, high school and college, you know, we learn that in, in certain social situations, there are things like uh, what white lies and and if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all and, and omitting certain things, right? So there's this gray zone. I would say in neurosurgery though, the concept of honesty comes back to the forefront because, you know, neurosurgery is a field where a lot of people are sick and you are depending on a large team to take care of someone who's, who's very, very sick and mistakes can happen or someone can forget something or you do something in error and you feel really bad about it and you don't want to get in trouble, right? At the end of the day, what's most important is the person you're taking care of and their safety and having the courage to be honest about everything, right? Whether you did something was an error, whether you did something that, that wasn't the best, whether you were up late last night and the next day you were falling asleep and tired and an error occurred, all of these honest assessments are exceptionally important, both for you to get better and for the patients who, are you, who you're taking care of do well. So that, that honesty and moral compass, I would say is one of the most important things that we look for when we're evaluating people who go into neurosurgery. There's a lot of people in the country who are very smart. And there's a lot of people in the country who um, do great research and are great critical thinkers. But for neurosurgery, when things are so critical, those two things aren't enough. And you just, you have to be a good person too, to, to do really well. And so I would really emphasize that um, as well. Okay. <laughs> so, in your own words, how would you boil down the career of being a neurosurgeon? Like maybe what type of patients you see or overall, what, what would you do? And if you're a neurosurgeon in your everyday life? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, neurosurgery at the, the strictest of definitions 
it is the surgical treatment of neurologic disease, right? So any medical condition that affects the nervous system, right? So the brain, the spinal cord, the spinal nerves, or the peripheral nerves, any neurologic condition that affects those things that is surgical, right? Where surgery is known to help, that's essentially the field boiled down. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get into specifics or uh, meaningful examples, this means that people who have brain tumors um, are, are patients that neurosurgeons care of. People who get into car accidents where there's bleeding within the brain or where there's pressure on the spinal cord because of a fracture, those are patients that neurosurgeons take care of. Um, even patients where the situation is less, um, less acute or less emergent or less dangerous, you know, the, the idea of sciatica or people who have pinched nerves or people who have shooting nerves down the arms and legs, uh, that's also a condition that neurosurgeons take care of because there's something physical pushing on the nerve that's causing pain. Um, there are subspecialists who take care of people who have seizures and the seizures aren't helped by medicine. And so oftentimes there are procedures or surgeries that go in to stop people from having seizures, um, to stop people from having um, tremors, right, is another one. So Parkinson's disease where people have tremors, uh, other conditions where people have tremors. So anything that you can think of that affects the brain or the spine that um, that is caused by something anatomic, something physical that surgery can help, that is what uh, neurosurgeons are Okay. So is there any, because I'm curious about this personally, is there any um, sort of a single patient that really impacted you? Like maybe their condition or their circumstances that they were in while they had their uh, specific disease or anything like that? Something that really impacted you personally? Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, um, there are a few. And I would say that they can be categorized based off of the medical condition because the medical condition itself was so rare. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's memorable. More often than not, though, um, I would say that most neurosurgeons by their by certain year in what they're doing, although the rare conditions can be exciting, um, as you do more and more surgery and take care of more and more people, you start to become and realize that these people you're taking care of are just people like you and me, right? They're people that are coming off the street. They're people who work hard. They have families. They have um, brothers and sisters and children and parents. And they also have a brain tumor or they also have been in an accident or their lives are now forever changed in some way. So a subset of the people that I remember are because of the people themselves. Right. And it could have been a very straightforward surgery that went very well. And they were, you know, just so appreciative that their lives are are back to as close to normal as possible. The opposite, where um, unfortunately there was a bad outcome or they didn't make it, uh, you know, or they died. And in this way, their their families are are forever affected by um, by that outcome. So. On, on the former side, you know, there was one uh, patient I took care of in training 
who had a very complicated uh, tumor at the base of the spine. It was a surgery that required um, us as neurosurgeons. There was the vascular surgery team, so surgeons specializing in blood vessels in the body. There was the plastic surgery team, right? So surgeons um, specializing in reconstruction of the body. And then the, um, the urology team, right? So, uh, so surgeons who are, deal with the kidneys and the ureters and the bladder. And all of us were involved in trying to take out this, this tumor. And in addition to that, by taking out a portion of the base of the spine, we also had to reconstruct the spine with um, screws and rods uh, so that the patient could stand because we were taking out a, a whole portion of that area. And the surgery itself was um, about 20, it was 26 hours. Wow. So um, uh, myself as a trainee resident and my surgeon, we were scrubbed in the OR for uh, essentially the entire time with the exception of maybe one hour. Um, and so he, he, you know, he told me to go sometime in the middle, like go to the bathroom and have a snack. And, and likewise, you know, um, I came in to, to start working and then he, he did the same. Um, but, you know, when, when there's a person on the table and their body's open and they're under anesthetic and, you know, you're, you're mid flight, right? So you can't, you can't take too long of a break and um, the plane still has to be landed. So that, that's something that I'll always remember, you know, one of the longest surgeries that I had to perform. Um, and, you know, the patient he did well, right? Uh, in consideration of the very complex tumor uh, and cancer that he had, uh, he did really, really well. Um, you know, on the flip side, for the other people that I remember, they had much more simple conditions. Um, but I remember them because of who they were. So, you know, the first person I ever saved, uh, I was 28 at the time, so I was a resident and he came in with bleeding inside the brain. And he came in through the ER and at, at that time, even though we're young, we're, we're trained up to do surgery independently as long as it's a very, as long as it's a very straightforward surgery. And at this time with the bleeding in the brain, we were already taught how to um, take someone to the operating room, talk to the anesthesiologist, have a plan, know how to open the scalp, uh, drill open the skull, enter the brain, stop the bleeding and then close up and exit the brain safely. And so I remember um, this guy came in and he was already in a coma and I did the surgery, right? Just as, as we do. And it was a very technical thing at the time because, you know, I'm tired. I, I've been up for maybe 16 hours at the time. And, and so I did the surgery and he did well. And I didn't see him again until, until the clinic about two weeks later. And when he came in, he was only starting to remember what happened, but clutching, you know, he was clutching a piece of paper in his hand that had my name on it. And he was asking for me. And um, when we met, you know, he said, I, I don't recognize you, but the, the nursing staff at my rehab center said that a person named Martin Tham was my surgeon who saved my life. And it wasn't until that time, two weeks later, after, I, after I'd already done the surgery, that it really started to hit me on the impact I had. Because up until then, as a tired resident, I'm learning how to do surgery, I'm learning all the technical aspects, I'm learning what the instruments are, what the parameters are, how to keep someone safe. And I'd done several surgeries up until that point already. But having this person come back to me and, and face to face, thank me, right? This 
disheveled 28-year-old thank me for saving his life, um, doing neurosurgery to save his life, was, um, was a very special moment. And obviously something I still remember today, right, 10 years later, and something that I think really affirmed the impact that we have that um, it's not just the technical side of performing a surgery where we're opening the skin, opening the, the skull or the spine and closing, but the real life impact that we're having on you know, every single person every single day. And, uh, and, and that continues to be uh, very, very special. Wow, just yeah, taking it all in, the story that you gave, it, it really opens up my my and i'm pretty sure all of our listeners perspectives on just how important being not just a doctor but like yourself a neurosurgeon or or any sort of doctor really is more than just studying med school and everything you are changing and looking out for people and that's the most important thing so just listening to your story is really uh i would say eye-opening to the field of being a, a medical professional so thank you for explaining and everything thank you no, of course. so my next question would be um, is there maybe any sort of technological or mm, technique wise aspects of neurosurgery changing and maybe the next couple of years or way in the future that you m might be able to see at the moment yeah, so in, in neurosurgery, um, there are a lot of subfields in neurosurgery. And in each particular subfield, there are a lot of really phenomenal advances in, in technology. Um, my subfield is spine, and so I can, I can go over that um, at the end because that's, that's the one that I know in, in greatest detail. Mm -hmm. But as we go over things like um, brain tumors, right? So brain tumors we know are treated with a combination of um, medical treatment and surgery and radiation. But in terms of the surgical treatment, there are a lot of technologies nowadays that can make surgery safer. There are imaging technologies where now when we look at the brain, we can actually see all of the fibers that are following from, say, your motor cortex down to the rest of the body, your language centers, um, the internal structures of the brain. And those can be seen in a lot greater detail and that image and um, information can then be imported into the operating room. So now um, these can be overlaid during the surgery. So you can think of it almost like an augmented reality or um, a virtual reality overlay. So when we look at the brain, it's not just the tissue of the brain, but we can actually see the overlay of all of these other structures we saw for the MRI. Um, during the surgery, there are special dyes and chemicals that we can put in that light up the tumor. So we can actually see the, the tumor fluoresce and it'll glow, which also helps in removing the tumor itself as well. There are um, camera systems and endoscopes to help to get to certain parts of the brain in um, smaller windows or in keyholes to make surgery smaller and quicker and safer as well. So um, there, are, there are a lot of different technologies with, with brain tumor surgery. When it comes to uh, functional surgery, so when you talk about people who have epilepsy and um, tremors and um, 
and other problems that affect their function. Um, you know, deep brain stimulation is something that's pretty well known where electrodes are put in and stimulated. Uh, we actually now have technology where we can put a small fiber optic wire and use a, a laser that heats up that area to try and destroy anything that's abnormal. And this laser catheter is put in through, you know, a hole in the skull that's probably the size of your thumbnail or your pinky nail, right? So it's something very, very small. And some people are even able to go home the same day. And so those technologies are, are definitely exciting to make things um, more minimally invasive and safer while still accomplishing the same goals in making people seizure-free or in taking care of people's uh, tremors or their movement disorders. Um, with regards to vascular surgery, so these are the subfields that deal with blood vessels um, in the brain. And blood vessels in the brain have traditionally, you know, 15 years ago, have been treated with open surgery. And nowadays we can go up with a catheter um, in the femoral artery from the groin. So we can put a small catheter in a wire and put that all the way up to whatever vascular problem is in the brain, whether it's an aneurysm or vascular malformation. And up there, there is a variety of devices that can now be deployed to treat them. So these are things like stents and small balloons and um, you know umbrella devices and different materials like um, you know different types of glue or different types of um, coils and, and all different types of materials that can now be treated without even opening up the skull at all. And so that's actually very exciting from, from a safety standpoint and to, to have a better outcome. And then lastly, with spine, I mean, with spine, there, there's always a lot of technological innovations to try and make spine uh, safer and more effective, whether this is through minimally invasive surgery down small tubes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate, uh, if you haven't already seen, of spinal robotics. So we have uh, robotic arms now that are brought to the operating room to help accomplish tasks that can now be uh, partially automated. And in that way, it keeps things precise and um, accurate and reproducible and allows us to get to the next level in treating people with really complex conditions in the spine, such as tumors and scoliosis and deformity and, um, and making those types of procedures uh, safer as well. So a lot of, I mean, neurosurgery, I think, has, has always benefited from advancements in technologies just because the surgeries themselves are already high risk and there are always ways to assist with technology to make these surgeries uh, safer and more accessible and to have patients do better. It's always so interesting to hear how every single field is advancing as technology increases and through the years and everything. I've always found that really, really interesting, especially, like you said, how robots are starting to make a huge impact. I mean, they have for a while, but it's really starting to ramp up right now. So I've always found that really, really interesting. Yeah. So my last question before we end this is, is there any sort of advice you would personally give to someone aspiring to become a neurosurgeon? Yeah, I, I think I would. And, and to, um, to clarify that question, is this someone who is, you know, in, in high school or someone who's in college or just someone in general? Mm, I'm, I would say, most of our listeners are in high school, 
but some are in college. So I would say more in general, probably. Okay. So I would say that, you know, becoming a neurosurgeon, if you're, especially when you're thinking at it from a vantage point of, of high school and college. So you're, you're in your late teens um, and, and early 20s, and you've heard of this field called neurosurgery, and you've looked it up, and you've you know, followed a few folks on social media that are either neurosurgery staff, and so they're fully in their career, or they're residents, or they're medical students applying. Um, maybe you've gotten a few books, or you've looked online, because there's a lot of resources now um, in terms of atlases and videos, and it's all very exciting. Right, so the surgeries are exciting, um, the impact is real, and the patients are, are sick, and you really want to help people who are sick, or say you yourself or your family have been involved in neurosurgery in some way, and you have a special connection because of that, and you really want to, to give back and to help others the way that, that hopefully you were or your family were helped, or um, there was an attempt at least to, to try and help them. So all of that, I think from the vantage point of someone in high school or college, it can definitely be um, daunting or overwhelming, right? Because if you're deciding then that you want to do neurosurgery, the, there are so many steps ahead of you, right? You have, if you're in high school, then you have to, to get into college and then you have to get into medical school. And then once in medical school, you have to apply and be accepted for training. And then you have to make it through training. Right. So making it through neurosurgery training is not um, is not a set thing by any means. The, the attrition rate is still 15 percent. So one in six people historically still drop out of training. Right. So just because you qualify to do Navy SEAL training, it right, doesn't mean you're going to make it. And so there are so many steps that oftentimes can can feel overwhelming. And it can feel like it's so far away, right? Because when you add all those things together, it's 10 to 15 years. And if you're, if you're 17 and you're thinking that you won't be a neurosurgeon until you're 32, I mean, to a 17 year old being 32 may almost be, may almost sound like you're, you're dead, right? <laughs> so far away. Um, so uh, I would say that my, my advice, in addition to, you know, like I said earlier, being a good person and, and um, you know, and, and being motivated and all those things. The best practical advice I can give you is to just focus on the next step and to get to that step the best that you can. And all those steps will start to add up and you'll be able to look back one day and see where you are. So, you know, if you're in high school, the next best step is to do well in your classes and to you know, to get A's as, you know, as, as best as you can, because that step will allow you to get into the best college that you can, right? And once you're in that college, in whatever major you're in, do the best as you can in every single class, right? And of course, everyone is going to have their own hobbies. I don't, I'm not saying that you should hold yourself up into your room and study all the time. I definitely didn't. I had my own hobbies. I had my friends. I had, you know, significant others. So live your life, but but always keep into perspective to do well in your classes because when you add them all together, doing well in all of your classes in college gets you your college GPA and gets you your the best MCAT score you can. 
to get into the best medical school that you can. And once you're in that, the best medical school you can, that's when you start opening up doors into departments of neurosurgery, right? So it's not until medical school that you have to focus on neurosurgery. Um, right now, you don't have to get into neurosurgery research. You don't have to shadow a neurosurgeon, although you're more than welcome to, to, to see what it's like. But the, the whole goal at this point is to get into those next stages of education. Once you're in medical school, that's when you can start gearing your career towards neurosurgery, and that's the fast track. And that's when um, you'll find mentors, both medical student and neurosurgeons, who will start to both guide you and mentor you specifically into becoming a neurosurgeon, right? Because once you're a first year medical student, it's four years of medical school and then seven years of residency. So there's still gonna be 10 years of training for you to become fully independent um, like I am today. But it's not until you get your foot into medical school that's the most important. And so my, my best advice is just to try and keep it in perspective, um, be well balanced, Definitely do the things you enjoy doing, whether it's uh, sports or volunteering or, you know, important um, social causes or, you know, be yourself and and whatever and however you define it, do something that's meaningful that represents it and and just just take the next steps as they come. And I promise at the end of the day, they'll all add up to both a wonderful application and a wonderful set of accomplishments that will allow you to get to where you want to go. Well, thank you very much for taking the time, giving advice, solid advice, if I may say so. And thank you once again for taking the time and everything to sit down with me. I know you're very busy, especially during the pandemic and everything, but we really appreciate it. Thank you. It was very well spent. I would say maybe half an hour that we talked, but thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. And and again, as uh, as you have, and, and as any of the listeners here, um, I'm I'm more I'm always more than happy to to respond to anything um, personal. So if you want to reach out to me, my, my email uh, is just my name, martinfam at gmail.com. Uh, anyone can always email me or reach out to me on any of my um, social media on on Twitter and Instagram at martinfammd. So I'm um, always more than happy to give my thoughts and, uh, and to answer um, any questions I'm moving forward to. Thank you once again. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.